Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Released on April 2nd, 1970, Patton would become one of that year's highest grossing films, and it eventually took home Oscars for sound, art direction, screenplay, editing, best actor, best director, and best picture. In his exceptional book, Making Patton, a classic war film's epic journey to the silver screen, author Nicholas Sarantakis calls upon extensive research to create the definitive account of this beloved film. In this conversation, I spoke with Mr. Sarantakis about Patton's 20-year journey to the screen, the building blocks of George C. Scott's towering performance, and the legacy the film continues to enjoy to this day. This is Patton, a salute to a rebel, a man whom the New York Times described in an editorial two days after his death as a legend, spectacular, swaggering, pistol-packing, deeply religious and violently profane, a strange combination of fire and ice. George C. Scott as General Patton. They followed my plan, I'd be there by now. I'd cut off the retreat of every damn German and on this island. I didn't pick you. Carl Malden as General Bradley. I picked you. You're one of the best field commanders I've got, but you don't know when to shut up. George, you're a pain in the neck. Sicily. France. The Battle of the Bulge. I will be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. Pat. Rated M. Yeah, I'm wondering what, uh, what drew you to exploring Pat in the film. The answer to that question is uh, I stumbled upon the papers of the producer, Frank McCarthy, uh, when I was at uh, the Virginia Military Institute doing research for another book. Um, it was my third book. I believe Patton was my fourth book. Um, anyway, um, no, it's, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, sorry, let me start that over again. Um, I stumbled upon the... Uh, papers of Frank McCarthy, who was the producer of the film Patton, when I was at VMI doing research for another book project. Uh, and what made me so interested in this was uh, that um, um, Hollywood does a horrible job of preserving its history. Hmm. Um, it'll preserve what it thinks is important, which are the props and the costumes, but what historians need really is a, a documentary trail, uh, written records, and Hollywood doesn't do that very well, despite the fact that it's kind of a young industry and a profession, relatively speaking, only in the last hundred years or so. And McCarthy saved everything. He saved, I mean, everything. Um, various drafts of the screenplays, drafts of screenplays by other writers, uh, internal studio memos, letters back and forth, uh, film reviews in every newspaper, not just the things like the told in the New York Times, but he would say things from the Houston Chronicle and the Dallas Morning News and um, the Atlanta Journal and so forth. So you could really get an idea, a feel for how the film was received. He saved uh, audience polling data that they did. They were just starting that process of uh, doing um, audience sampling and before they released the film and all that sort of stuff. So, um, Everything is there, and it was incredible. I, I said, oh, this stuff is there. Let me take a quick look at it, and it was astonishing. He, was, he had letters from people of all walks in life, people in the industry, people outside. It was just amazing, and what was also amazing is sometimes um, he would get letters from people saying, how brave of you to make such a bold anti-war movie, and literally uh, 
I would, you know, look at something, you know, that was right next to that letter and then the next folder, and it would say, how brave of you to make such a strong pro-military movie. And mm. I was just like, there's something here. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I mean, and, and it still remains how how people can can interpret a film through the prism of their own biases or, or experiences. And they can be completely mm-hmm. different readings. And I want to discuss the reception of Patton with you a, a little bit later. But you mentioned Frank uh, McCarthy, the producer. If there's a main catalyst behind this project, it, it was him. He stuck with it for a good long while. He stuck with it for almost 20 years. I actually think calculated it down to like um, 19 years, some some number of months and days. But uh, long story made short, it's a 20 year project, and that's just you don't that kind of dogged commitment to a project in Hollywood just doesn't happen that often. And he had the idea in the early 50s. They don't start shooting until uh, 69, uh, or they're not on set until 69. Um, there was a whole set of problems with the Patton family not wanting anything to do with it. Um, turned out that um, wasn't really important, but that did well. It's, it was important that it slowed it down the project for a number of years. But the family had no in, involvement with the with the film. And long story made short, they didn't get any money out of the film. And um, there are plenty of people who believed in it. Uh, uh, there was difficulties in finding a good script. Uh, the 20th Century Fox nearly went bankrupt at one point. So there were any number of problems that got in the way that had nothing to do with you know putting together a good script. But it was also kind of a good thing. And McCarthy admitted this um, somewhere in the process uh, because it took him forever uh, to find uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who wrote the original draft of the screenplay in most not all, but most of the good parts of the movie are because of Coppola. Now, Coppola wrote a screenplay that would have ended up, have ended up being about eight hours long, mm. and eventually they had to bring in another guy um, in the north to uh, uh, reduce the, the film down, But uh, and he stuck some stuff in as well. But uh, you would not have found Coppola in the early and mid-50s because he, was, he hadn't even finished high school, I think, at that time. So... Um, it took a while for Coppola to be there, just you know, in life, and he really he gave the the film a good, solid foundation. Yeah. What do you think drew McCarthy to to this material? Was it just the the opportunity to to bring life to this very colorful, sometimes contradictory character, or was it more than that? Uh, McCarthy was. Uh, an army officer during World War II. Uh, he actually ends up becoming a general in the U.S. Army Reserves after after the war. Uh, he was basically the uh, number two guy, the main assistant uh, to George C. Marshall, who was, of course, the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. So he's um, you know helping the, the guy run in the army. And he interacted with a number of uh, people and... Um, he also interacted with the, the real George Patton, and Patton was impressed with him, offered him uh, a position on his staff as his uh, assistant uh, or his aide-de-camp, and uh, which is a sign. You had two very powerful generals saying, this guy has got it all squared away, and um, when, you're, when you're offered or asked to be an aide-de-camp, it's basically a general officer saying, this 
young officer is so good, I'm going to start training him to be a general. So it's kind of a marker in the Army, even to this day, that this guy is is really good. Pay attention to him. doesn't always happen, not a guarantee, but um, it's a good predictor. He ends up saying no to that, but the interesting thing about this is he was really attracted or intrigued, might be the better word, by the personality of George, George S. Patton. And he says in interviews, the film was never a war movie. And in that sense, he's absolutely right. I mean, actual scenes of combat take less than two minutes of that film mm. uh, when you add them together. Uh, it's really a study of a character, a personality, and a guy who kind of kind of go one way and then another way and turn it off really quickly. Now, a lot of that turns out to be uh, the real Patton was a great actor. He knew how to act the role of the general. And um, I think people don't understand that always, um, but um, he was a very competent individual. He didn't become a four-star general on accident, but he had you know, a very intriguing, captivating personality. And there were, believe it or not, there were 1,101 generals in the U.S. Army during World War II. Actually, it was probably a bit more because that that's the number of generals at the end of World War II. Um, and when you have a 1,000 people in a room, you're going to have a number of different personality types. And some of them are going to stand out more than others. And, you know, that number of... 1,100 uh, generals doesn't include the guys who got killed in combat, and there were a half dozen of those. But, um, you know, some of them are going to, some of them are one stars, and they never became four stars for a reason. And the guys who became four stars became four stars for a reason. So this is also a guy who's very competent at what he does. Mm. And I've read some of the real patent stuff, and it's there's a really impressive intellect there. This is not just a guy who can inspire, you know, with blood thirsty talks and stuff like this. This is really a guy who understood how to use force, how to um, use space and maneuver, um, all these kind of things that you want out of an operational and strategic commander. Uh, but yet there's a colorful personality there as well. And part of being a general, it requires a lot of different skills. I mean, you have to be physically brave, but you also have to know your stuff. You have to be intellectually competent. Uh, but you also have to be an inspirational individual who can get guys to go do something that, you know, a lot the brain is telling them this is dangerous, you know, just stay here in this hole, you know, and uh, let someone else, you know, go fight the fight. Mm-hmm. you got to be able to inspire those men. And those were all things that McCarthy saw in Patton, and he figured this is going to make for a great character on film. So yeah, uh, I, that's, I think that's what really attracted him. And then that, I apologize. That's probably a much longer answer. No, no, no. That's a, that's exactly that's perfect. And what strikes me because I rewatched the film last night, uh, in terms of the character of Patton as portrayed in the film, I mean, he's a man that has a great uh, respect for uh, a knowledge of military history. He uh, he has a very gung ho attitude when it comes to war, and yet he's incredibly tender with the men who are wounded or killed in action. Uh, he he believes he's lived past lives and lived through past conflicts. Is that accurate to the actual man? Uh, I believe so. Um, the um, <clears throat> the film does kind of take a biased interpretation of Patton. Um, the film um, Coppola 
took a lot of stuff from two different books, and one of those books was um, Omar Bradley's uh, first set of memoirs that he wrote right after the war. And Bradley was kind of, um, um, he didn't like Patton um, when push comes to shove. And some of that, he, Pat, Bradley kind of pushed the um, um, our blood, his guts uh, interpretation of Patton, which is that he was willing to be very bold and risky at the expense of his soldiers. Uh, that wasn't entirely fair. Um, so, I mean, I think if you pay attention to the movie, the, one of the heroes of the film, maybe the central hero of the film, is um, Bradley, as portrayed by Carl Malden. But... Um, a lot of the stuff that you see there is a, the genuine guy. Uh, so I think that is generally a, an accurate interpretation. Mm. And um, one of the, I think one of the powerful testaments to how well a job George C. Scott did was the reaction of two of his kids. Um, his son, Lieutenant Colonel um, George Patton IV, I believe, or the third. Um, anyway, he uh, watched the film uh, in a movie theater, you know, in New York uh, with his son. And before the film was over, he was sobbing. Mm. And um, the daughter, his sister, the Lieutenant Colonel Patton's sister, wrote a letter to McCarthy after she saw the film. She said she was extremely nervous and scared. How would they portray her father? And then she basically wrote a letter to McCarthy and said, well done, uh, incredibly good job. And she said, Patton got every, or excuse me, George C. Scott got everything. The only thing that he really didn't get was Patton had a much more thin, rasp, uh, thin voice with a southern accent, and George C. Scott just gave the performance as George C. Scott with his voice, the raspy voice of, of the actor. He didn't try to mimic Patton uh, because he said it would sound weird. He'd already done too many uh, films. People knew what his voice sounded like. It would be off-putting uh, to the audience, but uh, his daughter basically said he he captured everything, his cadence, mm. uh, the way he basically looked at people, um, and there was a lot of prosthetics there. Uh, people don't know this, but there's a 20-year difference between uh, George C. Scott and Patton, uh, how old uh, Scott was when he filmed the film, versus how old Patton was when he was actually doing those things in World War II. And most people um, don't notice that, that this yeah. is a 40-year-old actor playing a 60-year-old general, uh, because Scott spent a lot of time working at getting getting it down. So even uh, in a physical resemblance, there's a lot there. George C. Scott is just epic in this film, and what an extraordinary actor he was. And... You know, it seems, because we have hindsight now, it seems natural that George C. Scott would play Patton because he had this very abrasive, boisterous uh, presence on film that seemed perfectly suited to this role. But he was not the first choice for this role. No, he wasn't. Uh, McCarthy um, had Burt Lancaster attached to the project for a number of years, and uh, I think... Lancaster was attached to the project something for like seven, something like seven years. And after a while, Lancaster said, uh, "Come on, let's get on with this." Never mind. But um, he talked to a lot of people, um, and there were a lot of people he considered. He offered the role to John Wayne. Wayne turned it down. 
Um, that was a reluctant move on McCarthy's part. He didn't really want Wayne to play it, but it came at a point when he was really worried whether or not he'd ever get be able to get the film uh, moving forward, and attaching Wayne to the project was a good thing. So Burt Lancaster, John Wayne, uh, Robert Mitchum apparently turned it down, um, and um, uh, uh, um, God, Rod Sterling, there we go, uh, couldn't remember his name, Rod Sterling looked at the project for Rod, a while. Rod Steiger, maybe? Uh, was uh, yeah, Steiger. I'm sorry, the actor. Yes, um, Rod Steiger uh, looked at the project, turned it down, later regretted that. Uh, and I think he could have done a, a mm-hmm. pretty good job with with the role. Um, probably the only other person, I think, who could have really uh, done as well as uh, Scott in that role. But believe it or not, um, Ronald Reagan wanted to play the role. Uh this was uh, remember this is a film that took a long time to make and uh and Reagan was still an act working actor until the mid sixties, so there was a time when the project was being developed and Reagan basically was interested and um you know, uh, McCarthy said, No thank you. So is mm. Reagan Reagan probably could have done it, but he would have had to have Reagan had the range, but it was at the at the high end of his range. And I don't think it would have for Patton or, or, or Steiger it would have been a lot, or excuse me for Scott or Steiger it would have been a lot easier than Reagan to uh, deliver the performance. Reagan could have, but I just don't think it would have, it was likely and it would have taken a director to really kind of push him to deliver that. And, uh, yeah. you know, these are all kind of what if intangibles. Um, I think Wayne probably wouldn't have just played John Wayne and it would have been John Wayne and Patton. Um, Burt Lancaster is tough to see. Um, Robert Mitchum probably not. So yeah, it is. But there are a lot uh, of people. There are interesting what ifs there. But um, yeah. but I think that the I mean obviously if anyone outside of Scott had been cast, it would have been would have felt like a completely different movie because in spite of the 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 great. Uh, uh, characteristics of this film from the production value to the supporting cast and the location work. I mean, it really is George C. Scott's show. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's the force that you, you come away with more than anything else. Yeah. This is a biographical film and he's on, he's on camera for a good chunk of that film. Um, the, who you cast in the main role is always important, but for this format, it was a make or break decision. Yeah, and that's another reason why it was so, in the end, good that it took McCarthy so long to make this film because in 1953 George C. Scott was not an established actor, and he wasn't an established actor until well into the 60s. Uh, so uh, he would not have been, you know, he would not have been the person they cast. It would have been Burt Lancaster, and it would have been a, you know, probably an okay film, but it wouldn't have been, you know, this epic film, and it's. Because it is a biographical film, since Scott is on stage for, or on screen for so long, his performance is ultimately the main factor in making or breaking the film. Yeah. And how did, uh, because we all know Copeland now is a great dramatist, but this was pre-Godfather, and you had yep. uh, you had uh, projects from him like uh, Dementia 13 and uh uh, you're a big boy now, the, the, those kinds of things, and, and it wouldn't necessarily scream out, this is the guy we need to write Patton. So how how did yeah. that happen? Uh, Coppola, 
went to graduate school at UCLA, and he wrote. He entered and won a, a writing contest. That was a he won an award for writing the best screenplay at uh, any of the uh, University of California campuses, um, uh, the branch campuses, uh, UCLA, Berkeley, etc. And that put him on the radar of Hollywood. And he was hired originally to be a script writer. And he spent a couple of years in script writer hell, which is he's writing a lot of stuff, uh, doing uh, script writing, doctor work, um, you know, uh, fixing someone else's screenplay. And um, wasn't, you know, wasn't what he wanted to do. He's making a very significant amount of money, probably about the equivalent of about half a million dollars in today's money. Um, but... Um, uh, McCarthy heard about this guy and basically said, listen, you know, um, I, I have this project. Uh, would would you be interested in writing it? And McCarthy was, or excuse me, Coppola was. Uh, there was a huge exchange of letters and uh, correspondence and uh, memos back and forth, uh, mainly from McCarthy to uh, Coppola. And he was giving him things saying, okay, think about this. And, you know, there were little notes on articles that uh, McCarthy had pulled out of magazines and stuff like this. So uh, Coppola was found basically because of that writing award. Uh, he had been, I think he was two years out, so he still had some buzz around him, but he hadn't done a lot uh, with um, in, in his film career at that point in time. Uh, people loved the script. I mean, they had had a couple people work on different versions of it, and they'd look at it and they'd say, this isn't going to work. Uh, in fact, one of these uh, guys whose name escapes me at the moment had won a, uh, an Academy Award for uh, writing a screenplay. So these were not incompetent people. Uh, but when they had Coppola and he wrote the screenplay, they're like, wow, okay, here we go. And there's a reaction in the studio that this is the screenplay. Now, it was too long. It would have been eight hours uh, to make the screenplay. So they said, it's going to need some doctoring. We're going to need to pare it down, but we have the foundation here. And then... Coppola did not write um, the uh, final version because basically his acting or his film career started uh, moving in places, and he had an opportunity to direct, and that's what he really wanted to do. And McCarthy was a good mentor in that sense that he didn't want to keep uh, Coppola from doing what he wanted. Coppola in later years said he got fired. That's not exactly the case. Um, in fact, I have the and I quote them in the book. Uh, there's memo traffic that makes it very clear that they were stepping aside to allow his career to move forward. Um, and then the screenplay got uh, derailed. They brought in someone else who basically said, no, I'm going to write my own screenplay. It, that was a train wreck. I've looked at it. It was, you know, it was competent, but it mm -hmm. wasn't great. Um, and then by accident, someone sent, uh, I believe, um, uh, Scott, the um, screenplay, uh, Coppola's screenplay, the secretary pulled the wrong um, screenplay out of the file, sent it to him, and Scott is like, you know, wait a minute, I'll do this. This is the one I want to do. And then they said, okay, and they brought in someone else to kind of take it from an eight-hour film to a two-and-a-half-hour film. So, mm. um, But that Coppola was a hot whiz kid in Hollywood in the mid-'60s, and that's how he ended up in the film. Yeah, I mean that the, his involvement makes all the difference in in the final film. Uh, yeah, the uh, and the last series of what ifs revolve around the the choice of director. Uh, we just did a um, 
a segment for the series on William Wyler's last film. And uh, mm-hmm. he he was close to uh, becoming involved in this project. And I, I, I think it was um, ultimately his ill health that kept him from committing further to it. But what, what did you find out about that? Weiler was committed to the project, and he backed out of it for a couple of interrelated reasons. Um, his health wasn't great. He didn't want. They were going to film the film in, or do the shooting in Spain, and he didn't want to go to Europe because of his health. And then he had had some uh, experiences with uh, George C. Scott previously, in which it didn't go well, and he didn't want to really direct Scott again. Um, mm. And um, there was a kind of combination of factors. So he said, thanks, no thanks, I'm, I'm out. And um, that's, they had to find a director. And Schaefer uh, was uh, starting to really become hot stuff. He uh, had a fairly, mm, how do I put it, fairly un, unimpressive uh, directing career until uh, he directed uh, Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes for 20th Century Fox. That became a monster hit, um, and then suddenly, you know, he was in demand, and the, he had kind of been specializing on films that involved kind of main characters that seemed a little out of context. They weren't out of place in society. Obviously, in Planet of the Apes, uh, Charlton Heston is way out of place in society, but um, he was attracted to the screenplay uh, the idea of writing about this general who didn't fit army patterns, uh, you know, this is not a, you know, airbrushed, you know, um, general that you would expect, you know, kind of the typical, you know, hard-charging general. This was colorful, creative, bloodthirsty, uh, yet tender and um, sympathetic and understanding, mm-hmm. so uh, colorful in a way that you don't think of generals as always being. And he wanted to do the he wanted to do the screenplay, or he wanted to shoot that screenplay. So it was kind of, it overlapped. Uh, essentially, there was a transition. Scott and Schaefer came in. It took a long time to kind of figure out when they came in because it was overlapping. Weiler was dropping out, and it was all happening at the same time. Yeah. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. You want it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. All this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, You all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. I want to talk to you about that opening scene, because I, I was okay. not, I was not aware prior to reading your book that 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 uh, 
that created a lot of uh, kind of friction and argument. Uh, is this opening too strong? But um, I mean, in retrospect, it just it feels so bold and it announces that character right in the first seconds of the film in such yeah. a visceral way. Tell me a little bit about that that back and forth that happened if, about whether or not this was the right tactic to take for the opening. Yeah. Well, the opening scene, um, in many ways, is the best part of the film. Uh, it's based entirely on uh, real speeches that uh, Patton gave. Uh, people who saw it, who knew the real Patton, are like, uh-oh, I know it's, uh, know it's about to come. The real Patton was probably not as energetic and as powerful as Scott was for those three and a half, four minutes, but the real Patton was also a lot more profane. He would use a lot more words that um, would probably have gotten in an R rating, which would have been very dangerous uh, in uh, the early 70s. But it was also primarily the work of Coppola. Um, Coppola liked to say he got fired because, from the film because of that uh, speech. That's not true. Uh, it was an op- Coppola left to basically take on directing jobs. People loved the the scene, uh, but there was a lot of debate on whether or not it should be in the beginning or somewhere in the middle. And it's kind of odd in the sense that you know here's the guy when he walks on stage, he's in you know he's wearing the four stars of a general, uh, and then when the um, you know, the next scene is he's a two-star general. So it's, um, he actually did give speeches in front of you, uh, giant U S flags, but never in that uniform. He only wore that uniform really on one occasion. Hmm. So it is kind of a, a bit of a surreal moment, but it's really about establishing the personality of this guy, uh, the character of this guy. And Scott loved it. He wanted to do it, but he also said, it has to go later in the film because I just am not going to be able to deliver that kind of intensity. We will never be able to keep that film at that level. Mm. And, um, you know, he, um, he lost that debate. Um, uh, they said, no, we're going to do it here. I mean, uh, Omar Bradley, one of the very few pieces of substance he made when he was hired as, uh, the script consultant to the film is, Oh, you can't have this. It'll insult our allies. It'll be, it'll be do detriment to us foreign policy. Uh, get rid of that. It's a bit of a silly argument because I mean, us foreign policy isn't going to be turned one way or another because of the film. Uh, but there were people realized it was very good, very powerful. The real difference really was where to use it, not if to use it. Yeah. And man, that, that the monologue is just—it's—it's um, it's Shakespearean almost, and the, the and the language, the kind of uh, that evokes, you know, carnage. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. put you're putting your hand in the goo that used to belong to your best friend's face, and I'm I, wow, <laughs> it's it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I love about that opening scene is that people would use that in the military. Um, mm. And there is a, there's a, a story. It's true. Hal Moore, who was uh, played, um, who becomes a general, who was uh, they made a movie about him. He's a Vietnam era lieutenant colonel. Um, um, uh, um, Gibson played him in, in a movie. We were soldiers once. Yeah, uh, yeah. He actually, after the war in the early seventies, he was in charge of um, training new recruits. And they got copies of that film, which was not easy in the 1970s. This is before videotape, 40 CD-ROMs, 
before um, on demand, and it was a real effort to get. But they had film, and they would actually show the opening clip to guys who just enlisted in the U.S. Army you know, and to use it as inspiration. Mm. And there's also a, a scene that takes place at the Naval Academy um, when Oliver North, the Oliver North, goes back to the Naval Academy. Um, the Marines are having a hard time getting midshipmen to choose them uh, to, to go into the Corps because when you're basically the equivalent of a between the summer of your junior and senior year, you're like, at least at that time, you make a decision if you're going Navy or if you're going Marine Corps. So he, Oliver North went back. He got in his Marine dress uniforms with the cape, the blue uh, uniform, and got in front of the flag. They played the music, and Oliver North apparently went on a, a rampage where he talked about what it was like to be a Marine and all this kind of giving a George C. Scott-type uh, speech. And, you know, after that speech, the next day, people were, choosing and they actually filled their quota for the Marine Corps among the midshipmen. So they're, it's really powerful. It's mm. interesting kind of like how this fictional version of reality become influences other realities. So it's, it's it is, really it is, interesting. It is an interesting phenomenon because I was thinking about this just the other day with um, a, a movie probably of much lesser quality, which is Top Gun. But mm. I guarantee... After that movie came out, there was probably a, a, a record uh, record enrollment in the Air Force just based on the the, the sexiness of that movie. Uh, and I'm wondering if movies have that power anymore. Um, movies do. Uh, I was in ROTC uh, when Top Gun came out, and boy, oh boy, was it easy for Navy ROTC to recruit people mm. uh, during during that time. Um, so it does, and I think uh, it, it, films have that same kind of impact. Uh, and I think it's fiction in general, and I'm, I think it's easier for people to relate. It's the narrative is simpler. It's more, you know, beginning, middle, end. Uh, you often create uh, moments that are powerful, and if you get the right actor, they do the job. But I was re I was reading something about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created. Uh, Sherlock Holmes wrote all the Sherlock Holmes short stories and novels. And even back in the 1890s, people had a hard time kind of dissecting uh, fiction from fact. And he would get, Conan Doyle would get letters saying, uh, where could I buy a copy of this book uh, about the 140 different types of uh, cigar ash? And it was like, Conan Doyle was like, it was a short story. It was a novel. And you still see that, I mean, I think actually film has a much more powerful impact because it's audiovisual um, mm. medium, it's more accessible um, in the sense that, you know, you can consume a film a lot faster than you can consume a novel. Um, but I think film still has that kind of power, um, be it inspirational. Um, and I think there's also a difference between... Um, how the film is used. Uh, non uh, Documentaries probably don't have quite the same impact as fiction because fiction, you're creating a narrative and you're hitting uh, emotional high points using music, uh, you know, yeah. camera angles, actors' presentations. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff there. But um, I, and I've been thinking, trying to think of a film that has had that kind of inspirational kind of impact of late and I'm going blank on one, but I, I still think they're, they're out there. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so, too. I just think we were a lot less... Uh, uh, the, our our consumption of media was a lot less segmented at a certain time, and so when I think, when people got behind, now you see that kind of thing on television, miniseries, because you know tens of millions of people are watching the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think you're. I think that's a good. That's a good point. That is a very good point. Um, how we consume film uh, today is very different than the way we consumed it in the early 1970s. Uh, I saw the film uh, when I was about four years old. Uh, my parents took me to a drive-in, me and my brother, into a drive-in. Mm. And um, I got to tell you, I say, uh, I have kids who are about the same age now, and I don't go to movie theaters because I can't take my kids. I can't take uh, them and expect them to sit there for two and a half hours. But um, when you're only consuming a film in a movie theater or in a drive-in, and um, that you're getting it at the same time. And there was no uh, cable, there no streaming, so films would stay in theaters for months. Um, and you could often go back and watch it a second or third time. It's like, wow, did you see, did you see Patton? People would go. Uh, there was also um, the format was the roadshow format, which they used uh, when they released this. You could actually call in advance, reserve a seat, there'd be a program. Um, mm. that practice is definitely gone by the wayside now, particularly with multi multiplexes, but I think multiplexes, but, um, yeah, when it's concentrated and it's, you got to get to the theaters now to see this thing and people are talking about it. Whereas nowadays you just like, eh, yeah, I'll watch, watch this on Netflix when yeah. I have time. Yeah. Man, but it's, what a, what a, what a glorious time that was to be a movie lover. The production of the film. I mean, this is an ambitious project. And uh, I, I'm curious, did it did it uh, did it go smoothly? Were there major snafus along the way? Um, they filmed almost all of it in Spain. Um, the Spanish army ended up basically being the extras. They played the U.S. Army. They played the German Army. They used it as training exercises. Uh, Spain uh, has a lot more diversity of um, geography than we might think, so they were able to do you know. Um, Mediterranean scenes. They were able to do hilly scenes, the winter scenes. Um, they had some problems working with the army because they would say, "Hey, we need another shot," and they're like, "Ah, we're done. You got it. You got us for eight hours. We're done." Um, George C. Scott had some problem health problems on set. Um, he had a detached retina, so that complicated things. Mm. Uh, and when you are in almost everything and you're basically blind, um, that is a real problem. Yeah, uh, George George C. Scott was also a um, problem drinker. Um, I'm not sure technically if he was an alcoholic or not, but there was no secret about this. And he went on some binges, uh, and there were times when he just he was sleeping it off, and they couldn't film that day, and that cost the studio money because everyone else was there, and you have to pay you and the camera guys and the lighting guys and the sound guys because they're there um, now. Scott was a professional, and particularly when it was explained to him, you know, hey, you're going on these benders, and you know, you're hurting other people. Scott would, you know, take that information, you know, on board, and he would adjust his behavior for a while. In fact, um, the opening scene, Scott is drunk that morning. He doesn't get to uh, the studio until basically midday, and then he 
he nails it in essentially one take, um, Schaefer basically says, that's fantastic. I want to do a couple other things. And uh, so he moves the cameras around and he says, that Pat, Scott is basically, no, I can't do that. I, I can't pick it up in the middle. So what Scott does is he basically does the entire scene again. Mm -hmm. He just says, I can't come, I can't show up in the middle of this monologue with the same energy. So essentially what they do is they shoot the scene from different camera angles about three or four times and they are done before, you know, the end of the shooting day. Uh, so wow. he did it in, you know, a matter of minutes, really. It's um, remarkable. So, yeah, I mean, um, now you would rather him be there, you know, nine o'clock when he's supposed to be there, but, um, uh, they didn't have any real problems on, on set other than those. Um, they had good weather, good weather, which was a problem because they were supposed to be shooting some scenes in the snow and it's like, we need snow. Why is mm. it so warm? Um, and those are things that, you know, you just have to adjust and you're going to use different camera angles or move the snow over here, um, before it hurry, before it melts. Um, but for the most part, they didn't have any, um, and those are actually some significant issues, particularly when your main character who's on, you know, probably 80% of the scenes isn't available. Those are some significant issues, but, um, they managed to, you know, move things around. One of the ways they dealt with, uh, Scott's drinking was, um, his drinking partner was the actor who played his, uh, um, um, basically Butler. Um, and, uh, they basically gave his lines to, um, other actors and got rid of him so he wouldn't be there, you know, making, getting Scott drunk and huh. allowing him to go on binges. Yeah. Do you have, outside of that first opening scene, do you have favorite moments from the film? Oh, do I have favorite moments from the film? Um, I really like uh, the the um, interaction with Steiger. Or I'm not sure there really is interaction, but I love Steiger because that that's a character who basically is offering you all this commentary on, um, on, on Patton. And that was an original, uh, invention by, um, Coppola. He said, uh, you know, this is a great way to kind of move things along. And so I really love the Steiger scenes, mm. the German, uh, observer, commentator, etc. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do I do like that they that they opened it up to to the the quote unquote the the enemy, and you get a sense that they have a tremendous reverence for Patton. I mean they they know that they really have a a foe of some weight <laughs> in, in Patton. And they yeah. have kind of a respect for that. Um, yeah. The you know the time that this film was produced, the v Vietnam War was raging. Uh, the counterculture was probably, I think at that point, it was probably turning in on itself a little bit. It was, it was in the, in the end stages, but still pretty vivid. Um, it doesn't seem like the best time to release a patent or, or was it? Yeah. Well, that gets back to the original issue of, is this a war film? And you would say, okay, it's a film about a guy in, a, in an army uniform. Of course it's a war film. Well, there are only about two minutes worth of combat scenes in that film. This is really the study of a character, you know, a personality. Um, I think the scenes with uh, Steiger, the German uh, commentator, get to uh, the personality of the man, and the studio was worried about this. I mean, they actually thought about calling it 
Patton uh, salute to a rebel. And that mm. was something they were coming up with uh, after all the shooting was done. And um, Franklin Schaefer, the director, basically said, I won't promote this if that's what you're trying to do, because it's not a salute to a rebel. Um, and in many ways, Patton was not a rebel. The real Patton was not a rebel. He was a colorful personality, but um, he knew how to play army politics. And when the time was required, he towed the company line. Um, but that would have sold well. But, you know, it's it's interesting because Coppola basically wrote the screenplay in the mid-60s. The Vietnam War was only just starting off. The American public doesn't turn against the Vietnam War until 68. And even then, if you pay attention to the public opinion polls, most Americans still aren't really opposed to the war. They're just frustrated that we're not winning. So even then, we're not really opposed to it. Um, McGovern, when he ran for president in 72, made a very big mistake running as an anti-war president or as an anti-war candidate. And the American public, even in 1972, was not anti-war. So at first glance, it does look like the wrong time. Uh, to be making a film about a man, about the establishment, representing the establishment, etc., representing the military. But it turns out, you know, there are, you know, 300 million people in the United States, and there are a lot of different um, opinions within that 300 million. There are a lot of uh, veterans of the war who, you know, who are now in their 40s and 50s who looked upon that experience basically fondly, uh, or at least were proud of it. Um, there are plenty of people who uh, did not were not angry about the Vietnam War, uh, particularly people with money, which is to say people in probably their late 20s, early 30s uh, at this point in time who had the disposable income to go see films. Uh, they were not necessarily worried about being drafted uh, into Vietnam itself. Uh, the, they did some uh, audience sampling. Uh, they did some uh, test audiences. And what they found was is that um, the people who were really attracted to the film were women because, for whatever reason, because they found that this was really a, thing, a role about uh, a personality. And that was another huge concern because there was exactly one female speaking part in that film. And there was a great concern that wives and girlfriends would not allow their uh, husbands and uh, boyfriends uh, to go see the film with them or would, you know, on a date night would say, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, so there were a lot of concerns about this that all ended up not being there. It's the movie spoke to a lot of people. And one of the interesting ways, and some of it was intentional on Coppola's part, was he crafted a screenplay that kind of spoke to people both on the right and the left, or both hawk and dove. You could either see this as, you know, ah, how, how great we were back then, if we can only be that great again, or, hey, even the military sees that, you know, fighting is stupid, you know, and this is a... You know, again, it speaks to uh, a lot of where audiences are and where their own biases are. They can see this as an anti-war film, and yet someone on the other side of the studio, or other side of the um, um, theater, could see it as a uh, as a pro-war film. So, yeah. Uh, and, and some of that was, as I said, Coppola was very careful in how he crafted it, and he also was, and everyone realized this, at least the people making it. This was about this colorful person and McCarthy even talked about this would have been still a very powerful story if he had been a banker or, you know, a college professor or something like that. I'm not so sure about a college professor, but you know, this, the gist of it is still there. This is a guy who 
has this really complex personality, and that's what I think really attracted people to the story.